Good evening, everybody. And we will begin in our usual way, chanting the refuges and the precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Udam Saranangachami Dhammam Saranangachami Sangam Saranangachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranan Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranan Gachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranan Gachami Tatiampi Sangham Saranan Gachami Anatipata Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Abrakmacharya Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Musavada Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikala Bojana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Idam Me Silam Magafalanyanasa Pachayo O Tu. So we'll begin 
uh, this evening's talk in a kind of an unusual way with a few moments of closing your eyes and visualizing or and or feeling that you're sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, after Mara had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was in his quiver or her quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation that was accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated 
never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha said on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit, we practice, and we practice with sincerity and with determination at home, with your sangha somewhere maybe. And now most of you or many of you at home again in retreat. And we practice with dedication. Our aspirations often clearly felt and known. And as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that the Buddha said was like a precious gem. Mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being an essential factor of awakening. And with this evening's talk, particularly oriented to mindfulness of the body. And so we'll look into mindfulness from two particular uh, perspectives. That of your direct experience, your cultivation or prompting of this quality through your ongoing practice. And in this context, also recognizing the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and as it takes root. We'll also briefly touch into mindfulness from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the heart, the mind of non-clinging. The natural place of mindfulness in the awakened heart, the awakened mind. When the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as it being like a precious gem, he was telling us that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. The very conditions we have to some degree, some of you more than others, depending on your situation, but that we all have to some degree here on this online retreat. Mindfulness, along with concentration, are key factors for the heart, the mind, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment, in this case, meaning the letting go, the letting go into awakening, letting go into liberation. 
I, I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother, the great mother of the whole of our practice. And in a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors that are necessary for awakening. And the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say then that mindfulness is the chief mother. The chief mother. And when it really begins to establish in us, it's the factor that lights up all the inner and outer phenomena that we experience, as well as offering us the greatest protection in this life. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. And that's sometimes translated as memory or to remember, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact, to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Years ago, at a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked the question, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? And I think it's a really, was a really good question then, and now maybe even a better question, because mindfulness has become very popular. The mindfulness movement these days. And because of this, although it's a good thing, some of its depth and some of its potency has dissipated because of its mindfulness movement popularity. So what is it that makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this. Just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing the body and mind. And what I mean by this is absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, concentrated, direct, and immediate mindful awareness in relationship to the experiences that come through each of the six sense doors being receptive to what is without, and this is important, without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, how we think it should be, how we think it shouldn't be or could be, or maybe will eventually be. The great spiritual teacher Krishnamurti once said, 
beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And in Zen, this is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to understanding the truth that actually sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but rather to meet the experiences of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close, really close, and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object, whatever the object of mindful attention is. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed, sticky kind of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights up an object just long enough and just deep enough for it to be known. It's this flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'm going to repeat that. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do pretty mechanically. Breathing, walking, hearing, the process of eating, picking things up, putting things down, thoughts, various states of mind, et cetera, et cetera. We pay attention to things that are pleasant, as well as to experiences that are unpleasant. We pay attention to experiences that may be wonderful and easy to pay attention to, as well as paying attention to things that are more difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it, no parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not the, well, 
well, I, I could really, really be mindful if only I wasn't so restless or I certainly could be mindful if I didn't feel so much anger. Well, I know I could be really mindful if I wasn't sick. And I'm sure that I could be really, really mindful if I felt better or if I really wasn't so caught up in, in thought or so attracted to or attached to pleasure, to beauty. It's the very stuff of our lives. It is our path to liberation. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action, living in the action of the body, heart, and mind. Living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. In a sense, we lose our self, so to say, in what is. So there's just what is without adding anything or needing to add anything and without taking away anything or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think I'm, I'm doing this, we're creating or we're recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living directly in the action. At times, over the years of my own practice, Mindfulness has felt kind of like magic. Not the magician's magic, uh, which is an illusion, and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and the great beauty, actually, of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, takes us out of the delusion directly, into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and caught again and again in our reactivity to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Buddhist scholar Analio puts it this way in his book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. He says, the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in Sati from Satipatthana forms the foundation of Satipatthana as an ingenious middle path, which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring 
of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique, he says, of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. So for example, practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, all of us want ease and happiness. And most of us want many aspects of our life experience to be permanent, to be ongoing, or at least uh, to deep, deep, be deeply fulfilling. We want our life to suit our passing fancies, our expectations and our heartfelt and deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to make this happen, trying to satisfy these deep desires through external experiences. Maybe by getting this and that, or getting her or him, by doing this and that, by going here and there. Or we try to find or try to get ongoing contentment and fulfillment through the constantly changing world of our senses and through the myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many or maybe most of you know, at least to some degree, none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said, happiness arises when we're mindful. A very simple but pretty radical statement. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely, very closely to sense, see, feel, and know our experience directly. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. A focused mindfulness happens when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we learn this by practicing it over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Our practice is one of deep intimacy the deepest intimacy really with our own experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, becomes an intimacy, a kind of 
profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment. And this present moment. This is a basic foundation in all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, what allows insight to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which which it inevitably does. We don't have to do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not far away at all. It's right here, ever present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right now. And again, it's our greatest protection. Some years ago, I was teaching a class, a mindfulness class here in Taos. And every week there would be a particular aspect of mindfulness that we would discuss. And then the students would take that aspect home and use it for their practice, rooting their practice in it for the week. And then we'd come back the following week and then we would begin the class by each person sharing something from their week of practice. Well, one week, one of the students came in and she said she had been watering her garden that morning. She'd watered her garden hundreds of times, but she said that morning she'd been watering her garden and it felt as though it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden. She was amazed by that. And then her mind took a big leap and she said to all of us in the class, how have we survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And we were all stunned into silence, so to say, for a few seconds and deeply appreciative of her insight. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. In fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, we're actually living at a distance from life itself.
And this just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. It's as though we're kind of living akin to our computers. You know, you push a button and out comes what's already in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pops our conditioned patterns, out pops our conditioned reactions. So another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, hopes, fears, judgments, and similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably each of you has had at some point. I certainly have. You meet someone new. And you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship maybe to your thoughts about them. Maybe how much you think you like them. You've never met them before, but how much you think you like them or, or, or are attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they, they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about that are from another person. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are. Or maybe what you want from them or hope you can get from them or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're actually then not experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that they weren't really at all like your imagined ideas about them had been? Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, and think is immediately interpreted Back, interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and our habitual patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a very clear focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time. And without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what is sometimes called beginner's mind. And I'll just share my favorite illustration regarding beginner's mind. When one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, I went to visit him and my son and his mother, my daughter-in-law, uh, when they lived in Pennsylvania. And they had just moved there. So my daughter-in-law and I went for a walk with my little two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. And as we were walking down a hill out behind where they lived, he saw a pine cone on the ground. Well, he'd never seen a pine cone before. So he picked it up. And he looked at it. 
turning it around every which way he could turn it around, looking at it very intently. Then he stuck it up in front of his nose and he smelled it all over. He put it up to his ear, listening, seeing if he could hear it. Then he put it by his mouth and he stuck out his tongue and he licked it. All the sense doors, what is this thing? He said, he didn't say it. He just obviously was saying it by finding out what it was. While I watched all this, I was amazed. And then like a good grandmother or a bad grandmother, depending how you look at it, I said, it's a pine cone. And he looked up at me with this kind of, oh, kind of look on his face. Oh, yeah. And he very dutifully reported pine cone. And then he went back to finding out what it was. Smelling, tasting, hearing, licking, etc. Looking. Well, I never forgot that. It really struck me. His fresh, open beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn or really relearn and bring into our life as a whole. Not that we're going to smell, taste, and lick and try to listen to everything to find out what it is, but we can be wide open to find out what things are and really connect. And it's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best, best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. Well as in freedom from the suffering of confusion, anguish, and fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. And uh, some words from one of the Buddha's disciples. One who is awakened. One who has taken the medicine of the teaching and practiced meditation and healed the sickness. The body. We'll pay attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. We'll explore mindfully noticing when instead of a direct relationship to the body, excuse me, I lost my, to myself here. The body in the body and just the body as such. And we'll be exploring mindfully noticing this body. When, when instead of a direct mindful relationship to body, we're caught up in our habitual ideas and interpretations regarding to the body, we'll recognize it and come back to a mindful connection. It isn't actually so easy to access this with mindful awareness as we're often quite deeply unaware of our habitual conditioned ideas and our conditioned habitual interpretations of our body. So an example, 
about 10 days ago, <clears throat> I was at a car rental establishment here in Taos, New Mexico, as my car was in the process of being repaired. <clears throat> the man working at the rental place told me that he had all, already had all the information he needed from me if I needed to extend my rental time. And then he said, so you won't have to come back here and see my ugly face again. Well, I was really quite struck by his remark, his self-deprecating remark about his face. He had a very fine face. He actually had quite a very beautiful brown-skinned face, but obviously had been more than once, either directly or indirectly, told that he was ugly. And he had taken this in. And on some level, he believed it. It can be a deep, transformative, and sometimes not easy or comfortable practice to recognize our habituated opinions and ideas regarding our body and letting then this habituated, these habituated ideas letting them move through and letting them go. Not so easy, but well worth it. As all of us here are well aware, one of our primary practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. We've been working at it for a week, pretty steadily. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible via mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. With making the simple sensations of the in and out breath at the Anapanasvat, a basic ground of concentrated and mindful attention. I have at times been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart-mind and what comes to be seen and understood with a simple, careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So now for just a moment, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the in and out sensations at the Anapanaspat without any self or with as little self as possible. And 
And now just very simply notice, for instance, are you trying to control? Are you trying to manipulate the breath? Noticing without judgment, without self-recrimination. Just noticing mindfully. In a moment of seeing clearly, sensing and seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, Seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath as sensation or as movement, maybe as a soft vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. With the, sen- with the direct sensorial experience of the breath. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. And maybe actually noting, noticing the ending, the cessation of the in-breath, and then the beginning of the out-breath sensorially. Or we may notice the in and out breath itself in a very simple way, basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasingly quiet and peaceful breath, as well as an overall body-mind calm. So mindfulness as of breathing is an important and maybe an entryway into the mindfulness of the body. The body in the body, mindfulness of the four postures, not our ordinary everyday kind of casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, more ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position, standing, sitting, lying down, walking, various movements of the body and getting up and down and flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep, waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? 
Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking without the layer of I am or without the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once many years ago, one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, asked me in a practice meeting with him. He said, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations? Well, for a brief moment, I was kind of caught by the question. I was surprised by it and caught by it, which in retrospect, I realized was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But in that practice meeting, very quickly after he asked the question and my feeling of being caught by it, very quickly there was a spontaneous reflection and a response of, no, no, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever physical phenomena is happening. A good question you might ask yourself at some points. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body. And as you begin to naturally kind of organically slow down a bit, you may begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. For instance, awareness of the intention to, followed by an action or an inact, or followed by inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention or volition itself begins, where it starts from, and how it feels in our body. I, in some independent, mysteriously isolated way, don't, in some independent, mysterious or isolated way, don't stand or not stand or sit or lift an arm or lift a leg or take a step. As we pay a more intimate attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body and the experience of interrelatedness within the body and the body-mind relationship, we may begin to see and to understand the role of volition, the role of intention come to experience and know it's arising, what it feels like in our body and not take it all so personally, or at least not so personally as we usually do. It's all a play of conditions. 
as this aspect of awareness of the body and the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive understanding of the subtler cause of suffering that begins to take hold, which we can open our hearts to, and it can open our hearts to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings, all beings everywhere. How identified are you? How strong is this, is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? Some years ago, I had a student whose name was Roy. He was a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up until his dying moment as he was dying of AIDS. And so sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon as he was lying in bed, there wasn't much left of his body at that point. And he stretched up his arm overhead and slowly turning it around, round and back and forth as it was stretched up and looking very, very carefully, very mindfully at it with great interest. And then he said in a very cool yet odd way, one word, he said, wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or totally, totally interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just as, for instance, does the afternoon wind or the early morning sunrise or the arising of anger or the sensations of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some experience, or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth, they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body, its movements and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as in the body that the Buddha suggests, actually it's not a casual suggestion, but a direction from the Buddha, is giving attention to the parts, the, body, the parts of the body. All 32 of them as it's taught in the classical Buddhist texts hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice, 
I'm sure that you have noticed parts of the body as they make themselves known, such as the intestine, the bladder, the heart, the lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? A mindful way. This retreat offers you the opportunity to bring a concentrated, mindful, but unattached attention directly to the various parts of the body. How identified are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body, for instance? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all of the various contents of the body. You may never have thought of it that way, but that's the way it is. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful aspect of beginning to dissolve one's own conceptual idea of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a meditator, this is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So now just for a moment, consider, how do you identify yourself? most of us, if not all of us, a primary and quite a large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality, our bodies. So considering for a moment in relationship to yourself, I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm gender fluid, I'm transgender, I'm thin or fat, or I'm not too thin or I'm not too fat. I'm tall or short or I'm of average height. I'm good looking, I'm beautiful, I'm ugly, I'm plain, I'm attractive, I'm unattractive. I'm dark skinned, I'm light skinned. I have good skin, I have bad skin. All I have, I have, or I am not, I am not, as you notice. My nose is large, my nose is too big, my nose is small, I have a cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak and I'm young or I'm young and I'm strong and I'm smooth skinned. 
and on and on and on and on. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years or just within days or just within moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and tremendous energy and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So a simple personal example, in the last few years, I've been shrinking, noticeably shrinking. I've shrunk about two and a half inches in the last few years. I used to identify myself in my whole adult life as being of average height. Now I'm a short person and I'm a short person getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Another important and potentially profoundly insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are in essence no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every single other form, nothing more, nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid static entity, and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching in a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching that if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window, it can be an opening to us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa, of form, one aspect of the reality of, of how it really is, one aspect of how or what this body and every other form really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning the four great elements or the four great essentials, as it's sometimes called, earth, water, fire, and air, air and wind being interchangeable words in this case, by directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body. This evening, I will just name the characteristics related to each of the elements. In a couple of days, I'll offer a guided sit called the four elements practice, but just naming the characteristics right now. So the characteristics of the earth element. And when you hear this, take it in in relationship to various ways that you experience your body in movement or not in movement. So the earth element characteristics, hardness, roughness, 
heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The water element characteristics, flowing, cohesion. The fire element characteristics, heat or warmth, coldness or coolness. And lastly, the air or wind element characteristics, supporting, pushing. It will all make more sense when we have our guided sit in a couple of days. The last instruction from the Buddha in relation to this first, first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something we think we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in just about every single place. The possibility of the corpses of insects, maybe birds and other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. Recently, I had an opportunity to closely observe a dead cat that was killed by a car in the road right in front of my driveway. All forms of life, all forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose or to just deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times really quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that all life forms do as and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, maybe it's only good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice actually, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. So every day for a month, I walked down to that body and sat with it for a little while, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seals decaying, decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month long retreat was a heart mind changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho the retired abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and the senior most Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and asked that he be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. Well, because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, but he said they were quite reluctant, but they felt like they couldn't say no to his request because he was a monk. 
He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, the word he used, they were fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said draw, almost drove him to run out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present. And little by little, he said, it became tolerable. Just a smell, just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding the package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay all around him. He mentions that at one point he looked up at the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which he found quite puzzling at first. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode any minute, which he said he dearly hoped it would not happen while he was there. It didn't. He said that when he went back out onto the street, he saw people in a radically new way with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, all living and non-living are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, probably first and foremost, our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant, constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that are beautiful to us, forms that are amusing or that are interesting to us or simply in relationship to familiar forms. And what I think is actually strange and amazing in a certain way is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, mindfully and closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this domain of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and we look carefully in the body 
our sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, feelings, and actions begins with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body and to receive them, to receive these sensations. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, which is one aspect of metta. It's an act of unconditional acceptance with grace and some degree of equanimity. And this acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different and not concealing and not hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and we intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate to our life in retreat, and of course, also outside of a formal retreat setting. So we might wash our dishes, for instance, as an act of generosity, and even as an act of love. So in that sense, as a holy act, we open the door, clearly sensing and knowing this touch, the temperature, and what the wrist is doing. We feel our, maybe feel our body contract, turning away from cold or from very hot weather. We watch ourselves and consciously with mindful awareness rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is actually often an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment, to feel and to know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. In relationship to the various movement practices that some of you might be doing during this retreat, maybe some stretching, maybe some yoga, and of course, walking practice, and and also our ordinary everyday movements. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves, not in a self-centered way, but as an act of respect and an act of loyalty. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome in a wise way. Someone once said, and it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, she said, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years. When we do say yes, 
it's immediately available, full of life and full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training to be fully alive. That we only lack the determination to feel, sense, feel, and know our aliveness. The body is really an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell the truth. I mean, for instance, if you break a leg, the body is not going to give off pleasant feelings. It doesn't have the capability to get lost in the past or the capability to project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven when thoughts and emotions are raging and maybe feeling just too overpowering to be with. And we are living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of this path and its fruits uniquely emerge in relationship to this particular conditioning for each of us. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. This is one thing when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension to vision and knowledge, and to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is this one thing? It's mindfulness centered in the body. So in closing this evening's talk, I'd like to read a wonderful and very inspiring instruction from the Buddha that you can offer yourself anytime. This comes from the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. 
Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. May each of you have a single excellent night, maybe tonight. And may all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifested through this day's practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And thank you for your practice. And we'll close our Dhamma Talk evening chanting the sharing of blessings. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death. May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless, 
through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.